Hi, I'm Dr. Jared, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast, a show for plant killers, green thumbs, and everyone else in between. Listen along as I deconstruct the craft and practices of remarkable horticulturists so that you can better cultivate your plants and yourself. Let's grow. This episode of the Plantastic Podcast is brought to you by Sanguinaria canadensis bloodroot. This plant is one of my favorite native ephemerals that appear in the woodland early in the growing season, right before the forest trees are clothed in foliage. This plant is in the poppy family. Its flowers emerge cradled in leaves early in the growing season and feature pristine white petals that surround the brilliant yellow stamens in the center. Blooms last a short time and open in response to daylight. Once pollinated, capsules form that release seed with ileosomes, a lipid-rich structure that entices ants to take them back to their colony, which is a really neat type of seed dispersal called mimicacori. After flowering, the lobed, kidney-shaped leaves continue to carpet the ground like little sun cells, And in wet years, the foliage can last on into late summer before the plant goes dormant. Both the genus and the common name reference how when parts of the plant are broken, like say the rhizome, which is not technically the root, they leak a red sap. Sanguis is Latin for blood, hence sanguinaria. Native Americans use the plant as a natural dye and to treat ailments, but parts of the plant are toxic to humans and herbivores so most critters leave them alone. There is a multi-flowered selection in the trade that typically goes for a pretty penny, but hardy to USDA zones 3 to 8, this native wildflower will grow great in your garden without a fancy cultivar. You can find this plant and many more from your local garden center and favorite online mail-order nursery. Hey everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Plantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jared. I want to give a special shout out to the many listeners I met during my recent plant presentations in Atlanta and New York City. I so appreciate your compliments and you saying that you have listened to and shared the podcast with others. It means so much to me knowing that we are all in this together, helping to share the love of plants with others. This month on the podcast, I'm very excited to have James Golden of Federal Twist. This conversation has that fireside chat feel where James talks about his love for his garden, how gardens play with emotions, and more. James Golden's garden design has been featured in national and international magazines, in the New York Times, and in several books on garden design. He has collected many of his inspiring thoughts in the recently published book, The View from Federal Twist. And from reading it over the holidays, I can attest it is a wonderful, well-written glimpse at the inception, creation, and management of a naturalistic landscape garden. James has been the recipient of national awards and is widely known in the gardening world through his garden blog, View from Federal Twist. Federal Twist regularly appears on tours of the Garden Conservancy, the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, the Hardy Plant Society, and on numerous private tours. Since retirement, James has started a garden design practice. You can learn more about James on his website and blog, federaltwist.com, that's F-E-D-E-R-A-L, 
TWIST.com and by following him on Instagram at I'm Federal Twist. That's I M F E D E R A L T W I S T. I've teased out and linked more of our conversation on the show notes on theplantasticpodcast.com, so check those out for further learning. So without further ado, enjoy this plantastic conversation with James Golden. James, welcome to the Plantastic Podcast. I am beyond thrilled to have you on today. Thank you, Jared. I think I've known you for several years, though I've only seen you in person once. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was thinking the same thing. We met at the Perennial Plant Conference in Swarthmore back in 2016 when I spoke there, and I don't think we've crossed paths since, but we've definitely kept in touch online. So No, but thanks to you, I know that Dara and Gustafolia is not Lindera Silicifolia. Good. Yes. I had to do some deep digging on that. Whenever I was in graduate school at NC State, I love the Linderas. They're just such beautiful plants and offer so much to the landscape, especially fall color. You just can't beat them. I'm almost embarrassed to tell you I have 21. That is amazing. So I wanted to start off talking about where your interest in plants germinated. When I go way, way back, I always wonder why I didn't have more experience gardening when I grew up in Mississippi, because I was, I really paid a lot of attention to plants. The red buds, the red buds in the South get much bigger than they do up here. And the, when the flowers emerge, they actually come out through the bark on some trees. I've never, I've never really seen that happen up here. I used to see Bear Creek south of Canton, Mississippi, where I grew up. Every spring would be full of these. It was in the autumn when they flowered, full of these shrubs with fluffy white flowers that would just cover them. And I loved them. And no one could tell me the name. I think I learned it probably 40 years later, it's Baccarus solimifolia. I don't know the common name, though. Yes, it's sea myrtle. Growing up in Tennessee, I would always admire them because they would come up alongside where they built the overpasses, and they would be a pioneer species. And then I was delighted years later going to Chanticleer in autumn, and they have it right there by the pond garden, too. So I think it's one of those plants that deserves wider appreciation. That Chanticleer is the first place I ever saw that shrub in a garden. And then I think Stephanie Cohen too has one in her garden that I saw one time, but definitely a great native that deserves wider use. And of course the mag you know the southern magnolia. You can't miss that. No, you can't. I really miss those because they're much smaller up here. Yeah. We have a massive one in our front yard that's just glorious. Yeah, every graduation, all of the girls in the junior class would go out, the whole junior class would go out and pick magnolias for graduation and then come into the auditorium at graduation down the aisles with the magnolia magnolia chains and then put them across the front of the stage. I don't guess they do that now. (laughs) Yeah, they probably have fake magnolias. So you then, from your youth went into majoring for English and becoming a writer, correct? Yeah, I ended up going to a college in Jackson, which was near Canton, called Millsaps, Liberal Arts College, actually a very good school, which 
I don't usually associate with Mississippi. But yeah, I, I ended up planning to be a poet, and I, I moved to New York. I started an MFA program at Columbia and ran out of money and realized, whoops, <laughs> I'm going to have to get a job. And since I was an English major, it turned out to be a writing job. Later in life, I, I, we had a brownstone, so I fell in love with orchids, the few orchids that I could grow in a brownstone window, mainly Paphiopetalums. What is a brownstone? Oh, it's a row house. Okay. And in New York, they use, in addition to brick, they use a lot of brown sandstone, which actually comes from, a lot of it comes from this part of New Jersey. It's a terrible material to use for the facade of a house because it doesn't wear well and round stone facades have to be redone at high cost all the time. Hmm. But And then once we bought a brownstone, I started always putting a garden into the back of the house. Small garden. The first one was like 16 feet wide and 30 feet deep. Uh but I, I didn't really get deeply into gardening until the first books by Pete Adolf and Noel Kingsbury came out, and Pete Adolf and Hank Harrison, and there were a couple of others. But I really just fell in love with those huge format books with the beautiful pictures of the plantings. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to try to make. Unfortunately, my ecology and environmental conditions quickly taught me I had to do something else. But that was probably in the early 2000s. And I fell more and more deeply in love with gardening and couldn't wait to retire and finally did that. And I started the garden while I was working in New York and I got out on weekends That was hard, so I just counted the years until I could retire and spend most of my time out here. That's nice. And again, what what was your specific job? Oh, I worked for a large engineering and architectural firm. Actually, I worked for a couple. I went back and forth between them as a in proposal writing and management for large infrastructure projects, railroads, highways, bridges. A lot of work at the World Trade Center site after 9-11. It was high pressure, long hours. So I looked forward to doing something I enjoyed more. Yeah, definitely. So roughly when would you say that your garden federal twist began? Oh, when it's when we bought this house. We bought it and moved in between Christmas and New Year's of 2005. And around April of 2005, I hired a contractor to come in and cut down the all of the cedar trees that were filling the land behind the house. They cast a lot of shade. Yeah. I The people who built the house left about 600 slides of the construction and the land before the house was built. And it was an open field and what, 1965. But there were little bitty cedar shrubs coming up. And when we got here, there were 30 and 40 foot trees. There was no open space. I knew I had a challenge because we ended up buying the house because we liked it. 
and the land I accepted. Maybe I was just crazy. I just, I knew I could make a garden here. I never had any doubt that I would have a garden. I just didn't know exactly what kind. Where did the name Federal Twist come from? It's the name of the road we live on. And no one is quite sure for certain what it's named for. Because when you first come up from the Delaware River, it's very straight coming up two big steep hills. But I have heard that in the past, there were switchbacks because the hills were so steep, horses and wagons couldn't get up it. I also heard that the Irish laborers, who immigrant laborers who built the canals along the Delaware, which are right here, just two miles away, like chewing tobacco and their favorite brand was named Federal Twist. <laughs> I think that may be true. Yeah. Interesting. I love the name because to me, what you're doing is you're trying to create a really interesting American garden, but with a twist. And so I've always connected to that name. So thank, thank you. you. You're welcome. So thank you so much, James, for your time today and definitely sharing just how you love to see the emotion in your garden. Yeah, what amazes me is that, like you've alluded to, you didn't really have any formal training in horticulture, but yet you just set out on this grand experiment to figure out how to grow plants that were appropriate to your site. did a lot of reading. Yeah. And I just happened to stumble on Noel Kingsbury, who is British, but I find almost anything I read can be translated into the American environment. And he taught me a lot about different kinds of the perennial characteristics, the competitors, the stress tolerator, the ruderals. So I learned a lot of basic information, even though I didn't have the practical experience. Boy, I'd love to have had some training and pruning. <laughs> yeah. Still like to find a course in pruning. <laughs> yeah. But no, I love that because I've met a few people in my life who have had no formal training in horticulture, but yet they become just incredible horticulturists. And they it's almost like the books and lectures and people they talk to, they just soak it up like a sponge and apply everything they read in just such creative, novel ways. I, I love books. And it's, I grew up as a very shy, introverted young man in Canton. And so I tended to, I had a tendency to get things from books. They were much easier for me to approach. If I had known such a thing as landscape architecture existed as a profession, I very well might have gone into something like that. But when I was growing up, I knew the word, the term landscape architect. I had a great uncle whose daughter was a, a teacher in the landscape architecture school, I think at the University of Minnesota. And I was always really intrigued about that. Mm. But I ne never got to know her. So uh, maybe a lost opportunity, I'm not sure, taking me in the wrong direction entirely. Because <laughs> as we know, lots of landscape architects don't know much about plants. Yeah. And I know there's some efforts to try to fix that. To I think educate it's changing. Them it's I do changing. too. Yeah. I think it's because plants are becoming so central to so many installations. 
Definitely. So a lot of your learning came from books. Is there a book that you return to frequently that you read in the early 2000s that just you love to revisit occasionally to get further inspiration from? I'll return to Noel because at the time, Noel was bringing into the English language so much has going, been going on in Germany and in the mm -hmm. 20th century with Carl Forster and Richard Hansen and experimentation with naturalistic horticulture. But the Germans don't, didn't write much in English. So that information really didn't get out. And Noel, I think, was one of the first people who started bringing it out. It happened mainly through the route of Pete Aldolf, I think. But he often wrote about the important Germans in the 20th century. And so there are a group of books I would go back because I learned so much, I would say, technically mm -hmm. from those books about how plants grow. And I had never heard of how that plants could be social. Some plants like to grow alone, some grow in small groups, some grow in large colonies. There's a lot of technical information I got from books. Yeah. And that's the type of stuff that I love to learn and share with people and students as well, because I think there's still people today who don't understand the concepts of competitor, rural, stress tolerator, sociability. And I feel like that just so enriches our gardening and plantings. It's something I yammer on about when people visit the garden. <laughs> and I wonder if they just, if they understand what I'm saying or if they just hear the words. And see, they, yeah. But so see, understand. Noise. Yeah, but understanding all that technical stuff has equipped you to make a really incredible garden and really incredible landscape garden. I would have been totally lost without it. <laughs> yeah. So I spent much of the holidays reading through your book, read a little bit and took copious notes. And there are a few topics I wanted to hit on about Federal Twist, your beautiful garden. One is you talk in the book about this idea of prospect refuge and the clearing in the woods. Could you talk a little bit more about that and the role that you envisioned that playing in your garden when you first started? I was very aware that I was going to be gardening and a clearing in the woods because I had to make the clearing in the woods. And remember, I said I wanted to be a poet. So I'm very conscious of the words I use. And I thought a lot about what a clearing in the woods is. I still think about it. I realize it's archetypal throughout the world, but there is an American, sort of an American archetype that comes from our history, from the frontier days when people moved into actually a sad story, moved into the Indian, former Indian lands, and right. had to make sure they had plenty of clear space around their houses for safety so they could mm -hmm. see danger at a distance. Interesting. I've done some quite a bit of ancestral research and noticed that my family gradually moved down the East Coast and then across the Southeast. And almost every move, they moved in groups. And they were moving from old land into land that was being where the Native Americans were being vacated and moved out. Hmm. And the last piece of that was when they moved from Alabama into Mississippi, hmm. when I think the Choctaws 
were driven out. So there are many different ways to approach the clearing in the woods. In making the clearing, I would want to have some memory of what was, what use was made of the land in the past and who lived on it. I don't mean that I have signs around the garden saying this used to be Lenny Lenape land, but I would like to have something suggestive in terms of feeling or a certain way the light falls that you may not think exactly about that, but your your consciousness is set up by the spirit of the place to be open to things like that. I love how you're tapping into that Native American history and the significance of their presence here before us. There's also the sort of technical side of it. A clearing in the woods is basically a woodland edge habitat. Yes. Unless it's really big. That gives very powerful clues as what plants you can grow. It's a really rich environment to grow plants in. Yes. My my clearing in the woods happens to have soil that is very heavy, compacted, wet clay that has other effects on what plants I can grow. Sure. Yeah. Edge habitat is pretty much mostly what all of us have in our gardens. And you're right. Having plants growing along edge habitat, there's a lot of diversity you can get because basically you transition from full sun into part sun, part shade and full more full shade conditions. So you're right. There's a lot you can do with that type. And especially if you have this whole clearing. Another aspect of it I like is that the woods surrounding the clearing become a part of the garden, very much so in my garden, because the house happens to be basically pointed toward where the sun rises. So there's a screen of trees across the other side of the garden, and I get these beautiful beautiful sunrises with the light shining through the trees. And if it's a foggy day, it can be just amazingly beautiful. That's glorious. Yeah, the photographs in the book, too, are just spectacular showing those sunrises. And you're talking about the trees. It's almost like they're the borrowed landscape where you're borrowing the landscape that surrounds this clearing in the woods. I love the idea of borrowed landscape. And I go to what people might consider to be a weird place with it. I know you were in visiting gardens in Europe last summer, I think. Yes, we did. Yes, we got to go visit a couple of gardens there, definitely. Did you go to Rousham? No. Okay. It's it's near Oxford. It's actually one of the, I think, maybe the first landscape gardens. I believe it was designed by William Kent. I think the date 1737 sticks in my mind. It's still owned by the same family who owned it in 1737. It's a very green garden. It's a, a landscape garden, but it's relatively small. Usually, you're the only person in the parking lot. There may be a few cars there. You, wa- you walk over to the entrance you pass some chicken coops, you put your money in a machine, you don't see another human being, then you walk across in front of the house and around the end of it, which is a pathway between the house and a ha-ha, mm-hmm. which is a dropped, if people don't know what that is, it's a fence, but it goes down into the ground. And then you enter the back of the house where there's this huge, green lawn with a sculpture in the distance 
of a lion violently attacking a horse. Hmm. I always imagined this was like television for the 18th century. They led <laughs> calmer lives then. But and then the land drops down to the Cherwell River. And then on the other side is more green land, but it's not owned by the people who own Rousham and it's not part of Rousham. Hmm. But William Kent designed a Gothic facade structure that's up on the hillside on, way off on the other side of the river and added some detail to another existing building. So when you walk around Rauschen, you get this impression because he borrowed so much landscape that mm. it's much larger than it is. That's a fascinating approach to make the landscape seem bigger. You keep using the term landscape garden. Can we define that for the audience? I want to think of the garden as, as a thing. It sounds pretentious to call it a work of art, but I'd like to think of it in that way. I don't think it is. I teach students horticulture is a science, business, and art and plants. So and I don't its origin it. was in painting. The original, the original word for landscape was landscape. And it referred to a painting of a landscape. And it came mm -hmm. from people like Claude Lorraine, who established this romantic tradition of the landscape. Part of the reason I asked, James, is because when we drive around and we look at people's front yards, a lot of times people will say, oh, I have my yard landscaped or we have landscapers. But your garden and their landscapes look nothing the same. And so to yeah. me, it's almost like what you have done, it warrants another word. It warrants some new type of language. You talked about stimung in the book and how the garden was to elicit a feeling or a sense or emotion. Hans Gumbrecht. I don't know how I found his book, which was really about a new way of reading literature. It means many different things, feeling, emotion. And it can mean very important, important things, and it can be used very simply and conventionally. It means something looks right, mm -hmm. or stimmen means could mean to tune a musical instrument. Yeah, you're right to look at that word because I think that has a lot to do with what I mean by landscape. Mm -hmm. Not that I can give you the answer, but uh, the landscape almost as like a living being. Mm -hmm. It has a life. It's something that evokes feelings and moods and provides a setting for certain things to happen in life. It that might just be sitting out on a cool summer afternoon watching the breeze, or it might be some very significant personal encounter with someone, but it's a very important place. And I guess I used, I was struggling for a word to bring it together. And the closest I got was landscape. I like the connection of the word land to the earth and then escape a shaping or forming in some way. Yeah, I like it too. And I've heard some people say landscape's kind of a dry, barren, bleak word just because of how many people abuse the word and how they refer to their landscapes today is like meatball shrubs, sprayed turf grass. But yeah, you have clearly imbued your garden 
with emotion. So what are your thoughts on a garden being utilitarian? Some people need utilitarian gardens because it's the way they are going to enjoy a garden. It would not be my preference. I don't want a kitchen in the garden. I don't even want a swimming pool in the garden. I want the garden to be reserved for more <laughs> poetical, mystical, mysterious purposes. But that's just me. That's my personality and my desires. One of the other things too that struck me in the book was you said, you said, I hate gardening. Rather, I hate the labor of gardening. And I think you're not alone. I think a lot of people struggle with the work and effort that go into having a garden. So do you have any thoughts on how the typical gardener who's wanting to do something like what you've done, any thoughts about how they can manage that labor or minimize it? What I did was have a very wild and naturalistic garden where the, the main thing I have to do is cut it down once a year. That's a great simplification. Of course, someone has to either burn all that biomass or find a where, somewhere to put it. It's uh, true. And there is the planting, but a lot of my planting has just been broadcasting seed and letting it come up to try to develop a greater diversity. Just seeing what seeds want to come to life in my heavy wet clay. You can think about it and think about labor low maintenance, low labor methods like planting prairie or meadow of grasses and perennials that you cut down once a year. Going with that is, of course, plant selection because you need plants that like those conditions and look well together and look interesting at in all times of the year that's not labor that's just fascinating reading about plants and visiting gardens and talking to other people about plants and finding out what you want to play with in the garden i don't know of a way to get around digging big holes into heavy clay <laughs> yes minus an auger an auger but i yeah. did an auger <laughs> 18 yeah. inches wide. <laughs> yeah. I guess they exist, but they're probably really expensive. Yeah. I have been on some plant rescue trips up near Dallas, digging in some of the clay up there. And it's insane how it just mucks and sticks to your shoes. You add two or three inches after you walk through a field of that stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. My friend Giacomo was here one, I don't know. A few years back, and a nurseryman had given him several carrots, which he couldn't take back to England with him. So he planted them here. And we mm -hmm. went out in the front near, near a fence. And it was a wet time of the year. And we were planting those carrots, and the clay was like, like plastic. Mm. It was just like like wet plastic if such a thing could exist and he did remark that he had never seen such awful soil before <laughs> that's funny one of the things too i wanted to ask you about was we were talking earlier about competitors stress tolerators rurals and to me i appreciate how brave you were early on with competitors because it sounds like you just went in there and threw things in to see how they would grow and if they began to take over or 
become aggressive, you welcome to that. And I think a lot of gardeners, that scares them. I think it does. I'm surprised that so many people are concerned about plants that they think will, quote, take over. I started with Queen of the Prairie, Philopendula rubra venusta. I, it was hard to find plants just when I was starting my garden, but I found some at a nursery near here. And I got, I think, 30 or 40 plants, probably five-gallon plants, because Noel had recommended planting big plants to try to gain size quickly and shade out the weedy undergrowth in the garden. Hmm. And I wanted to mention it because there's so many different kinds of competitors. This is considered to be a highly competitive plant. But over the years, and it's probably been, I don't know, 14 or 15 years by now, it has, it's still there. It's highly resilient. I can't say that it's spread much, but it's taken the land where I put it and main, maintained itself there. But it doesn't spread or interfere with the growth of other plants. Other plants I have, it doesn't, other plants behave differently. The sylphiums, prairie dock, cup plant, I'm trying to remember the common names, sylphium laciniata. All those came from seed. I just ordered seed and threw it out to see what would happen. And they, they occupy some spaces continuously, but they also spread around quite a bit. But and they're big plants, but when they're coming up every year, it's very easy to pull them out. So if you're paying attention, speaking of saving labor, I find that to be one of the easiest things to do to save labor. I have a big plant. When it's young, I just pull it out. That's it. I got another plant, which is not a native. It's Inularesimosa zonenspeer. So it must have come through Germany. It was a plant that was liked a lot by Wolfgang Irma. I am not sure how people pronounce his name, but Irma van Sweden Associates, who invented what was called the New American Garden 40 years or so ago with big sweeps of grasses and perennials sure. and monoculture. He liked this plant, and I knew he was wild and crazy German, so I found some for sale at a little nursery in British Columbia, and I ordered two. I put them in the garden. They grew. And then in a couple of years, I had a lot of Inula racemosas on Inchpeer in my garden. And it's a big plant. It's probably the b biggest plant I have. So it's a prolific self-seeder at least in heavy, wet clay. It's an extraordinary plant. It's one of my favorites. But the thing is, it's considered a competitor. The sylphiums are considered competitors. The philopendula is considered to be competitors, mm -hmm. a competitor. But I guess the point I'm getting to is these terms are flexible in meaning, and competitor can mean many different things. Mm -hmm. And a competitive plant can exhibit, plants can exhibit quite different behaviors. The important thing is to pay attention to them.
Yes, it is. I agree. And you're right. A lot of times your competitors are going to be plants that grow up tall, shade out of the things, can be rhizomatous too as well. And a lot of plants, like you said, they don't perfectly fit into those three categories that we as humans love for things to fit perfectly in categories, but yes. they often don't. So some of them tend more maybe toward the ruderal or more toward the stress tolerant. You have others too, like Miscanthus, Panicum, some of these other grasses as well too. And that's something else reading your book too that helped me learn was that sometimes there is a blurring between the matrix layer, which is this ground cover layer that you know covers the soil and keeps weeds under control. And later on, it can become an emergent, almost competitor or primary plant layer later on the season. I think the wording you use was that those categories, like you just also said, they blur later on once growth happens in the summer and the fall. They really do blur. If you describe the garden in June and in October, the, it would be interesting to compare the two descriptions in terms of the triad of different kinds of plants. Yeah. One of your other comments you made in the book, and it was one of my favorite quotes, you say the garden is like a slow motion explosion, transient, but eternally repetitive. Ironically, the cycle changes permanence too. what a joy to watch the show go by. And that's one of the things that I too get out of gardens is just embracing their seasonality. And so over the seasons, what are things that you have loved seeing transition and change at Federal Twist? My garden is late because I I think we're in a sort of a cold pocket here. So it, it gets going in May, but it's not until June that the ground is covered. But by June, everything is at pretty much the same height in early to mid-June. So the plants are going to be seven or eight feet high are at the same height as the plants that are going to be two feet high. But that there's a, such a mixture that looking at it, it really looks like this elaborate, beautiful carpet. And you appreciate the garden in a totally different way because at the time of the year, it doesn't surround you. It's not immersive, but it's, uh, it's just beautiful to look at the different shapes and textures and how they knit together. By July, the tall plants have matured and they're flowering and the sylphiums are waving those yellow flowers above your head. And it's a totally different environment. This is when people who visit often tell me they're lost and they want to know how not to get out. <laughs> and then in autumn, uh, when the chlorophyll starts to die and different colors emerge, particularly all the many different browns, and the plants that start desiccating, you can see through the plants more. They're more not transparent, but you can see the spaces and your ability to have firm orientation as you walk about the garden is changed because you can see through to other paths that were invisible to you in midsummer. That's, I think, one example. And it continues into winter where there are certain parts of the garden because it, what is, 
past mid-January now, and the garden has started. Some plants are falling apart. Some of those tall perennials are still very strong, and they're, they look like dark sculptures in the garden, like Giacometti sculptures. And on a foggy winter morning, it can just be absolutely glorious, stunning. Or on a bright sunny day in the winter, it might be as boring as it can be. <laughs> so much depends on the lighting and the conditions. Sure. Yeah. But what a beautiful place to enjoy that and see all that. So thank you for sharing that. Another question I want to ask you too is, I loved the, some of the little details you shared in the book about your process of how you made the garden and you upkeep the garden. So for example, you talked about how you mowed paths to visualize where you wanted walkways to be. And that I connected with that because I did the same thing in our property. I started mowing areas after we moved in to see what I wanted it to look like and be. But if you, let me back up just a second. Clearly you have garden visitors and from your book to people want to learn how to make a garden like what you have, like Federal Twist. And so if you were teaching a college class or a class to adults, what are two or three of the principles that you would really want them to take home about how they could create a naturalistic wild planting like what you've done at Federal Twist? Uh, I think first you need, would need to understand your ecological conditions. What is the soil like? What are the water conditions? Is it wet or dry? What's the surrounding environment? Are you on a hillside open to the full sun? Or in your, are you in a clearing in the woods with a lot of shade coming in at different times of the day? Then you would need to know what plants can grow in those conditions. So you'd have to learn the plants and do some research and study and go look at plants. I think you, you always want to keep in mind what you started with. What is your land like? Does it, does it bring out certain emotions or feelings? Or do people react to it in a certain way? That probably would be the level number one, actually. Do you have advice on how people can learn to read the land better, to see what aspects they can take advantage of whenever they're designing for plantings? Let me just mention one other thing before I answer oh, yeah. that. I think the next point in making the garden would be thinking about how you want to design the garden. And we can get to that later, but that's where my first path came in. And how was your question? Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. My next question was, you were talking about the importance of being able to read the land and to see what emotions it evokes. Do you have any advice on how people can become better equipped to read the land? I once heard James Hitchmo speak. He's a fabulous speaker. And he said this, he said, pay attention to what is in front of you. And he said it in a way that I've always remembered those words. I, I don't think there's an easy answer other than paying attention and trying to be sensitive to what's going on around you. What does it sound like when the wind is blowing if you have trees? What, a, what, what Do you hear that sound a lot? If you have cicadas in the summer, what is, what is that like? Here we have hundreds of frogs, so we have many different frog sounds at different times of the year. Our 
if you're in the woods, are there certain wild animals that are around? What birds do you have? We have a lot of woodpeckers, actually a lot of, quite a few pileated woodpeckers. So often you hear that loud, echoing, thumping sound in the distance. I think you just have to open yourself up to experiencing where you are, vision, sounds, feelings, how does the sun move, what's it like in the morning, in midday, and at twilight, in the gloaming. I think that's it. (laughs) Pay attention to what's in front of you, but that can involve a lot. Good. Thank you. I also like to talk to people about how they cultivate themselves and grow their gardening skills. Do you have any practices or rituals that you find really help you as a gardener and horticulturist? Perhaps we we still have a place in Brooklyn, but I stay here most of the time. Because when I get up in the morning, I walk into the living room and there are windows looking out over the garden toward the sunrise. That experience of making a cup of coffee and sitting in the chair and looking out is very important. Does it center me? Yes. Is it one of the most important things in my life? Yes, it is. If people follow me on Instagram, they see a hell of a lot of photos of sunrises. <laughs> yes, we do. And we enjoy them greatly. Other than that, I've tried meditate. I can't say that I abide by the disciplines very well. And I do like to take walks around the garden and sit nice. out in the Adirondack chairs. Maybe not in January, but... I think that's one of the things people don't take enough time to do is enjoy their gardens. So walks or sitting in the chairs, having the garden visible so it's outside where you can view it from the house, I think that's good. Uh, Yeah, I'm very lucky that we got a house where I could end up with a garden surrounding me. I even have, have it heavily planted on the other side of the house. It's hard to know what is front and back of this house because it's... The 1965 house. The back is really the front, but the side toward the road, I tend to call the front. Hmm. Yeah. Another question I want to ask you is your blog, The View from Federal Twist, of course, is a place where you really developed your ideas and were able to think through writing. And if you were starting over from scratch today, would you still do the blog? to explore some of those ideas or would you Oh go definite through? definitely one of one of the delights of making a garden and being a gardener and being in, coming into the gardening world is the relationships I've developed with new people all over the world and that's one of the most important things because this guy who was a shy little boy who really had a miserable childhood I'm so happy now And I I know so many people, not nearly as many as more outgoing person would, but uh, I really enjoy the people I've gotten to know. And that's brought a tremendous richness to my life. Yes. Plant people are some really great people to get to know and share our passions with. Definitely. I just have a few questions here wrapping up, some quick fire questions. One thing I wanted to ask is, Since you have a background more in English and architecture and developing proposals, are there skills that you brought from that world into the world of horticulture, into developing your garden? I think particularly in the world of proposals, 
there's quite a rigorous discipline because responding to a, an RFP for rail vehicle procurement can involve several volumes of documents, for example. Uh, and you have to be very rigorous in understanding questions and answering tw questions and trying to be accurate and concise. So I, I think all of those skills can have profound effect on your garden and are very helpful in helping you be approach things. I hate to say rigorously because it sounds like it's work. It's really fun. It's not work. Yeah, it's pursuing things passionately. Yeah. Is there a myth that most gardeners believe, but your experience or research has shown otherwise? But I didn't understand the question. Oh, so basically, is there a gardening myth that a lot of gardeners believe to be true, but your research or experience has shown otherwise? I'm concerned about what I want to, because I, I don't think it's what you're expecting me to say or anyone. I think, I think because we're in a time when our environment has been so changed by human occupation on the planet over the centuries, our climate is changing, that though native plants are very important, and I grow a lot of native plants, it's okay to grow non-natives if you are paying attention to what you're doing. I think as climate changes and the world we live in changes and our culture and societies change, we're going to have to be open to experimenting with other things. So I would, in spite of my admiration for Doug Tallamy and my agreement that with him, he's proven the case that oak trees are important and that we have to grow certain plants that certain insects here have evolved with and have to have, it's okay to grow some non-natives too. I would say that. I, I would also say that I think big ag is a far greater problem than what we're doing in our gardens. I think what we can do can help, but what big ag is doing to the land is horrifying. Yes, it is. And I have hope with some of these ideas that are coming out, like prairie strips and fence rows, hedgerows, preserving that habitat. But yeah, it's, I think we're headed toward a future where it's going to take every plant that we can possibly grow to try to transform the world. So thank you for those thoughts. What's one thing that you wish gardeners did more? God, it's so hard because there's so many different gardeners and so many different kinds of gardeners. But speaking generally, I'd say for American suburban gardeners, I wish they paid more attention to ecology and uh, put more energy into things more valuable than lawns. Good. Wish gardens could be more ecological. People could plant more trees. People could link themselves, link, create corridors with trees and shrubs through these suburban wastelands. I agree. 
Second to last question I always ask on the Plantastic Podcast, propagating horticulturists. We're really good at making more plants. Do you have any thoughts on how we can connect horticulture to more people, young people or people who may not have a lot of experience gardening yet? I've been delighted when people, particularly young people, come to visit my garden. And I love the fact that certain gardens, Anticlair, have programs with interns they bring in every year and they have a program to share an inter interns with Ray Dixter in the UK. Other than that, how we get, that's for young people who are already interested in gardening. How to get, reach young people who have no interest in gardening is a, an issue I'm not certain about. I know the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society is making a big effort to do programs for young people in cities. I think that's one way it can happen within a city, taking an abandoned lot and having someone organize a garden and a group of kids who can help with it. And I think the same thing could probably happen in other parts of America. Thank you for those thoughts. So last question I always ask people is, where can people find out more about you online? I have a web page for a business that, that I don't do much business with. If you type the words federal twist, you'll almost certainly find something about me. Mm -hmm. There is a vineyard down a couple of miles down the road that you'll also find. But for the most part, federal twist will be me. I am enchanted by the emotion that you constantly share and the perspectives and wisdom and insight you share with your garden federal twist on Instagram in your book. And so I really appreciate your time this afternoon talking about some of the things you've learned in this process. Thank you, Jared. I enjoyed it, and I hope you'll come by someday. I would love to. I cannot wait to get up sometime, and hopefully we'll see each other again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today. Do you have questions or comments? You can visit theplantasticpodcast.com for show notes and to reach out and say hi. Remember, plants can't talk, but we can. The plant world needs people to share how wonderful these green organisms are. So tell someone a fun fact about plants. Make it simple, make it remarkable, and most of all, make it plantastic. Until next time, keep growing.